There were crickets all around, and all of a sudden they all stopped. I kept on seeing something move over in the woods, kind of a silhouette. I thought it was a deer until we shined the light on it. Must have been six foot nine. It was huge, tall. It was a humanoid. I could see below the midsection, could see the thighs, but not feet. I'm believing it's bipedal. The hair was either dark brown or black, probably dark brown. Must have covered most of his body, maybe an inch long. We did see one arm. One of my friends saw it. His arm was longer than human. Eyewitness account reported to Linda Godfrey and included in her book, Michigan Dogman. I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. A podcast where two historians dive into legends of murders, ghosts, cryptids, and more in the Great Lakes region. Today, Dogman Part 2, Examining Michigan's Cryptid. How are you, Sam? I'm good. How are you? Not bad. I'm excited to be looking at Dogman. You weren't excited when I suggested it. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, know. I, I wasn't really. Um, this was one of the topics that was on the list from the very beginning, and it's it's one that I was a little a, a little um, nonplussed about. I'm not sure what nonplussed means, but I'm pretty sure that's what I was. <laughs> I think your your response to me was something like, "Yeah, it was just a, it was an April Fool's joke. It was a song." <laughs> that yeah, was well. About it. that's and there's that one in wisconsin that might be you know yeah that was that was pretty much that was pretty much it but the more i got into it the more i i got into not just um some of the interesting dog man stories but the way it's such a as we're going to see relatively recent cryptid phenomenon compared to some of the the sort of classics that you sort of see the this is a really weird way to say it. The research community ecosystem kind of grow <laughs> up around it, and you see all sorts of things to, um, to to sort of think about. So, I knew nothing about the the Michigan Dogman for a long time, but you knew a lot about it. So, how did you come to learn and love the Michigan Dogman? <laughs> um, so, Dogman has been sort of my Michigan cryptid jam. <laughs> Um, since uh, I was in college, I believe it was my junior year, if we're being specific. And um, I was, you know, hanging out with a couple friends. Um, one was like one of my best friends. We'd gone to grade school together. And um, our other friend told us about Dogman. And we were like, shut up. What is this Dogman you speak of? Like, we've lived in this area our entire lives. And... Um, <laughs> And and he told us about, you know, this series of sightings kind of in um, I, I went to Ferris State University, which for, for my bachelor's degree, which is in um, Big Rapids, Michigan, near Reed City, which will come up um, a couple times later. And so he talked about these sightings in Reed City and these stories and whatever. And so once we all sort of dispersed, my friend came back to, to my dorm room with me and we looked up all of these dog man stories and even came upon the Gable film on YouTube, um, which is sort of a, a found footage dog man thing, which we'll talk about more. And, you know, as we sat there and watched it, knew nothing about it, I, you know, the end we screamed and, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was a fun college night for a group of Michigan history type nerds or something. <laughs> so, um, so I've known about Dogman since I was probably about 20 ish years old, probably. So, so. so I'm envious of your, your Dogman experience because my Dogman experience was, was not nearly as fun. <laughs> uh, the college where I teach at had a, a, a thing, an event, a community event where you could come and listen to presentations and experience college. And I did one <laughs> on, weird Michigan. And um, I didn't know the dog man on my list. I'm not from here. I'm, I'm just Googling stuff, right? <laughs> um, and then one of my colleagues says, well, what about the dog man? I'm like, well, why don't you share about the dog man? <laughs> Wonderful. I love this kind of participation from people, you know, in, in the, um, in the, 
the 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 the, the crowd, the hoi polloi. And I um and and she she mentioned the, the she said it all started with a song mm. from a DJ. And so it went uh, it went from there. So that but colored said, your impression of Dogman until it, you met me. <laughs> it did. It it really did. It it really did. So the song was from a DJ in Traverse City named Steve Cook. And in 1987, he released this song on April 1st. So huge clue. It's this <laughs> sort of April Fool's Day sort of thing. And he created it as kind of a half fact, half fiction thing and meant it to be a joke. And what the song claimed was that in the seventh year of every decade, the dog man would appear. And it goes on to relate stories in those years, 1897, 1917, 1957, 1977, and so on. You'll notice that I did not say every decade with a seven. I think we probably get the idea, right? <laughs> so in the song, he says that, that it might be one creature. It might be a whole pack. And he claimed that as he was writing the song or when he began writing the song, he knew nothing of an actual Wolfman, dogman like creature, just he said he came up with it out of his imagination. And then afterwards, he discovered a, 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 a long history of these sightings. But what happens is the song prompts a huge number of calls into the radio station there in Traverse City from people who claimed to have had sightings of their own. So there were sightings and people perhaps had never reported them to anybody, but the song either prompted them to call in or maybe triggered recollections of these sightings. But in either case, the song played a role an, a novelty song played a role <laughs> in the Michigan dog man becoming a thing. We should say that the name of the song is The Legend. So um, if you wanted to look that up, obviously you can. And we'll provide a link to something where you can find the song. Um, but you could Google <laughs> Dogman song Steve Cook if you wanted to. Um, but it's called The Legend. So um, can I just say, I've always thought it was weird that it isn't called The Legend of the Dogman. Yeah. <laughs> or The Dogman. Yeah, or, I would agree 100%. I mean, I, I, I ascribe to a, a very sort of you know, descriptive <laughs> philosophy of novelty song naming the monster mash isn't going to be mistaken for anything else. No. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. You know what you're getting when you get into that, but <laughs> one, one horn flying purple people eater, very descriptive. I, I'm impressed. You said that without, <laughs> yo, yo stumbling or pausing. Cause I, I can, <laughs> I can never do itsy bitsy, teeny weeny yellow polka dot. bikini. Oh, yeah. it, it, it's like, it's all right there. <laughs> The Legend. I see a song called The Legend. I'm like, I don't know enough about that. I don't have time. I'm going to move on. So we thought this would be a good time to to talk about um, what Dogman isn't. We've sort of related that it's, you know, this bipedal dog type creature. And we've heard that in the the intro story, the eyewitness account. And it's something we mentioned in our previous episode. So if you did not listen to that, you should probably go give that a listen. We talk um, a bit about dogman, werewolves, wolf lore, that kind of thing. But we wanted to dive into a couple of specific, I guess, legends, folk pieces of folklore that sometimes get mixed up with dogman. And, and this isn't what we're talking about. <laughs> so we're not talking about a werewolf. Um, although I think poorly, the Monster Quest episode that talks about the Michigan Dogman calls it American Werewolf, which was very upsetting yes. to me. <laughs> because to me, a werewolf is somebody who, you know, uh, goes around in human society by day and almost every other night of the year. But the night of the full moon transforms into a wolf. Yeah, a, a werewolf is... This is a really dorky way to explain this. A werewolf is a transformer. It has mm -hmm. a a bipedal mode. It has a wolf mode. Those are the two modes. It's one or the other. It's it's you know it, it switches back and forth. It's not one thing all the time, 
right? I mean, that's... It's a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing, right? Like two different yeah. natures. You can be a very nice, right. normal person, yeah. and then you turn into a werewolf. I mean, if, you, if you're if you a Harry Potter person, Remus Lupin was a very great person, and then he just happened to turn into a werewolf sometimes. Wasn't so great. Or if you're my age, you've seen Teen Wolf with Michael J. Yeah. Fox. So I've seen Teen you, Wolf too. <laughs> All right. And so, um, so every once in a while, um, skinwalkers are also brought up in terms of Dogman. And a skinwalker is very specifically something that's um, related to Navajo culture. Um, so kind of a, a different part of the United States than the Great Lakes region. And it's a term used to describe a harmful witch that can take the form of animals. And it's often associated with trickster animals such as the coyotes. So, of course, we do get, you know, kind of a canid type animal um, in that case but again different different from a dog man <laughs> and i think that regionality separating that out is also important right. when you're talking about where where different legends and pieces of folklore come from and then the other one which we'll um, mention a little bit later too is the wendigo or wendigo um is it when i like saying wendigo but i think from our research over the last week, I think we found that there are so many different spellings. There are. <laughs> and pronunciations of this that whatever works. We'll go with it. Some depends on what how we're feeling at the, in the moment. Right. Um, right. But the, the Wendigo is a tradition from Algonquin speaking native cultures. And so there are several different... Um, Native American tribes inside of the Algonquin speaking cultures. And this is a person that is turned into a creature. They're turned into a Wendigo by an evil spirit. The person takes on a new form, which often varies, but doesn't generally look like a wolf or a dog or a dog man. Um, sometimes they have a skull head. They're really skinny, sometimes actually bony. Sometimes they're big and fleshy. Um, but I think in my research, I found that's just sort of like one very specific case. But sometimes they have horns or antlers, sunken eyes. So it, it looks very different from what the dog man looks like. And so when the person is turned into this creature, they become cannibalistic. They eat the people around it. Um, they can mimic the humans around them. And it's often greedy people, people who are disassociated from their community, living alone. They're on the fringes. These are the people who are susceptible to those evil spirits to be turned into the Wendigo. And all you know, we find um, the Wendigo coming up in different pieces of pop culture. Um, there is a supernatural episode that deals with the um, Wendigo. And as, as Aaron pointed out to me, I was a little ashamed I didn't know this, but um, he it's also a creature in some of the X-Men comics dealing with my favorite character, even Wolverine. So that's right. That's right. So one question I, I had is actually I got two questions. One is is do we think there's a difference between a dog man and a wolf man? And are the terms interchangeable? Because in some of the things I read, I mean, they're using dog man at the top of the page and wolf man in a paragraph at the bottom of the page. And is, I, I don't, do you have a view on this, Sam? Well, I mean, when I hear dog, wouldn't it be great if it was like a golden retriever man? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> or, or basset or a, hound man. <laughs> I'm thinking like a labradoodle man. Oh my goodness! So because so hypoallergenic fuzzy. and everything. Yeah. So that would have been great. I don't use wolf man so much because I think wolf man sometimes is used very interchangeably with werewolf. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that's why like dog man has been the thing that it's like this is Michigan's dog man as opposed to wolf man. But I mean it's it's associated with looking like a wolf and you know and like monster quest episodes and stuff they're they're relating them to like wolf populations right. and and obviously that's the lore that we looked back at in our last episode but to me it's just not getting it confused with werewolves dogman has become part of this this universe of cryptids joining bigfoot and champ and the loch ness monster and ogopogo and oscar <laughs> the beast of busco and the, the, the dog man is, is often divorced from the super mm -hmm. supernatural aspects of <clears throat> things like the werewolf, the Wendigo, the, the skinwalkers. These are all, you know, clearly supernatural. Uh, Bigfoot has, depending on who you talk to, some supernatural elements to it. We are going to see some dog man episodes today with supernatural things. Um. Actually, like, so 
and Linda Godfrey, whose book um, on Michigan Dogman we relied on heavily, I've read um, a bit of some of her other things because she starts tracking um, these dogman creatures like throughout mm-hmm. the country. And she does end up sort of making some connections with like interdimensionality oh, does she? And, okay. and things like that. And I just because in preparation for tonight, last night I did watch that Monster Quest episode <laughs> about Dogman. Um, when when the team assembles to go out into the Manistee National Forest and look for wolves or whatever it is they're doing, um, there is somebody there who's like, oh, I really think it could be an interdimensional being. So um, there okay, is a bit of that, yeah. but it's still like more Bigfoot than it is truly like a, a werewolf or, you know, this truly spiritual type Right. You know, am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah, you are. You are. You are. Absolutely. And there's even an organization that we're going to talk about a bit later devoted to the the research of the Dogman. It's the North American Dogman Project. So that's um, it's in a short in a relatively short time, as we're going to see, it's become part of uh, part of the Cryptid Club. Yeah, so now we're going to actually turn to the sources. And our our sources for Dogman are mostly eyewitness sightings um, because that's that's how, you know, we get these stories about Dogman existing. People see him and report him. It's not like, you know, when we looked at the Mad Gasser or something like that and, you know, we had different pieces of things left at sites and things like this. We just have these folks' stories. And so here in Michigan, around Halloween, we often get, you know, the new, nice newspaper articles that are like the creepiest things in Michigan, <laughs> Michigan legends and things like that. Mm-hmm. And Dogman will come up and they often trace the the first Dogman sighting back to 1887 um, in Wexford County. And they say that two lumberjacks claimed to have seen a creature that stood on two feet, so bipedal, had the torso of a man and the head of a wolf. So this sounds very much like a chimera, like a centaur type thing, as Mm -hmm. opposed to like a wolf that's standing on two feet, which is what we'll hear later. Um, And then, and then there were conflicting reports. Um, It was two people. So I don't know if they just disagreed at the end, um, but they said it had either blue or amber eyes. So who knows? Um, it was roughly seven feet tall. And and that's really all we have from the story. It's not a detailed account of the encounter. No idea really where it came from. Just that these two guys saw this man with a dog head. <laughs> and it sort of stopped after that. It wasn't like a, a wave of subsequent sightings, right? It, it that, I mean, from like what I saw, it's just the story. You know, that's yeah. what all of these you know, things that come out point to as being sort of that, that first story. Okay. That's, that's interesting that there wasn't, you know, at least copycat sightings sort of things. Cause usually there are. um, Well, and and that area of the state though, in 1887 would not have been very um, densely populated. Um, So these were lumber men. (laughs) So where is Wexford County? So Wexford County is in, um, I don't know if you'd call it the, northern middle section of the lower peninsula or the lower <laughs> northern section of the north of the lower peninsula um but it's kind of south of traverse city it in, encapsulates part of the manistee national forest is is in there we have the larger city of cadillac being probably oh, the biggest okay. um, city that's that's inside of the county but you get 131 on the eastern half you get m37 on the western half so it's kind of you know right Right there, like I said, south of Traverse City of Ways. So, listeners, if you hold up your right hand in front of you, yes, this is probably about the first joint up from your palm on your ring finger. Yes. Uh, so that is uh, that is where in <laughs> Michigan this would be. Um, and, and if that you're was, not from Michigan, welcome to the hand map. <laughs> w- welcome, welcome to to the the greatest geographical tool uh, that humanity has mm-hmm. yet devised. Yes. <laughs> so there's other stories that predate the uh, the the craze the the dogman craze of the, the the legend song and all the things that spin off from there and Linda Godfrey talks a lot about these in her book Michigan Dogman which covers way more than Michigan as we found out but often 
she was talking to the witnesses themselves. And I think this is important to point out. These witnesses were sharing these stories decades after the encounters that they had Mm -hmm. in many cases. So that's something to keep in mind. It's not something that means we automatically discount what people say, but it's just something to keep in mind. So from right around my neighborhood, Flint, Michigan, summer of 1973, um, there's something about this, and this is almost unique in this case, the witness actually mentions the dog man's biological sex. Witness name is Jim, not his real name. And he worked (laughs) delivering fruit and produce with his uncle. And one Thursday night, around 1130, they're delivering produce, I guess late at night, and they see, quote, a large dog-like animal pawing at something at the side of the road. And then the creature stands up. And Jim was startled but later described the creature as having a powerful upright body covered in black fur and a wolf-like head. And he was able to tell that the, the this dog man was male. And that's interesting because in a lot of these cases you read, when an investigator asks the witness, you know, was it, was it male? Was it female? Like, I, I really couldn't tell. All right. So the next one that we have um, comes from 1977. And this is from Oscoda, which is further north in Michigan. And there's a deer hunter. He's out with his cousins. It's November. So that's that's whitetail season here in Michigan. And he hears movements and says, um, well, this is what he writes or tells Linda Godfrey. So she has it in quotes. Um, My first impressions were that it was a stupid cousin, bear, (laughs) mountain lion, or some dumb hunter walking in circles. (laughs) Um, Can I just say those those things are all so different. (laughs) Very different. It could have been my relative or the mountain lion that wants to eat me. I don't really know. (laughs) Maybe a bear. And then he goes on to say it was like something out of the Predator movie. I could see a form large, at least seven feet tall, but it was translucent. So he fired five rounds at it and the creature was unaffected. So he took out his uh, handgun and fired three six round speed loaders. So 18 shots. He noticed um, on further questioning by Linda that before the encounter, the woods were eerily silent. Um, So if you've ever heard these stories, it's like all of a sudden the woods go silent and then you see Bigfoot or something like that. Um, (laughs) He says the shape was tall, but not wide. And it looked like a hole in the woods. And, um, you know, again, this sort of reminds him of the Predator movie. Godfrey then, uh, in relating the story, refers to the book The Hunt for the Skinwalker, which deals with um, Skinwalker Ranch. And she says, you know, that it's sort of a similar encounter as something that would have happened out at Skinwalker Ranch, um, which you know what our opinion is on the Skinwalker connection to (laughs) dogmen. Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't sort of help. No, and honestly, when you look at this story, I mean, it's a it doesn't really follow a lot of other dog man stories either, because if it's translucent, no. it's not furry, right? It doesn't have a dog right. head. Like this is okay. <laughs> it's a thing that happens in, in paranormal. Books. It does. It's, yeah. It's like, like, like stories that are sort of right. thematically related sometimes get, uh, sometimes get, uh, get pulled in because I suppose like when you think about it, you're looking at a phenomenon. And so you don't necessarily know what all of the aspects of this like phenomena is. Right. But right. it's like you, in a way though, you need to like pin it down and have very specific things that you're looking at. And I think you and I both agree with this because that's why we wanted to list what, what we're not considering dogmen right. <laughs> at the beginning, because if you don't, then it's like, well, why isn't this a dog man? And why isn't that a dog man? And why isn't Bigfoot dog man? You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's like you, you need to have a definition. Historians define their terms. That's what we do. <laughs> we, we you sort of have to. Otherwise, it just sort of goes all over the place. Yeah. But like it, now that you've explained earlier that in, in other works, Godfrey does move toward more sort of interdimensional oh, that's true. sort of I things. Am. That makes the inclusion of this here make a little more sense. She just doesn't explain that in this story because this book right. is very, very small. <laughs> it, it, it is. Um, at least the Michigan part of the book about Michigan Dogman is, is fairly <laughs> small. Um, and, and it's a book that 
and this isn't a criticism, this is just an observation. It's a book that is much more heavily weighted towards description than analysis. We get a lot of stories. We don't mm-hmm. get a lot of speculation about what this all means, which mm-hmm. which is which is fine. I'm I'm completely fine with that because a lot of times when people try to explain what it all means, they look kind of silly. But it felt very old school to me. Just like here is a book full of weird happenings, and mm-hmm. um, that's that's what I sort of grew up on. You know, getting involved <laughs> in this stuff is is books like this, mm-hmm. and we will have more cases from Godfrey and from other sources. But now it's time to take a little break. And next time, we are going to be looking at, honestly, a rabbit hole for us. It starts with a castle, a supposed witch's castle that might be haunted, some weird ruins. But is it haunted from witches that were there in the past? Is it haunted from a brutal, horrific murder from the 1990s? Is it not haunted at all? But is it the location of an ancient fort established by the real European discoverer of America, some Welsh prince in the 12th century. It's a bizarre, fun rabbit hole with characters ranging from horrible high school girls to Thomas Jefferson. So our title will be much shorter than this. I, I I I was working on titles and I've I've got nothing so far. <laughs> it's going to be fun though. You can subscribe to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Great Lakes Lore relies on listener donations rather than advertising. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, there are links in the show notes and at greatlakeslore.com to contribute. And be sure to reach out with your questions and comments on this episode and the last episode for the next installment of Monday Mail Call. And now it's time for Legend or Lie. And it is my turn to stump Sam. Um, As we know, as you know, if you've been listening, this is a segment in which we take turns presenting the other one with a story that might be a true long-lived legend or might just be something we made up <laughs> and the other person has to try to puzzle that out and so far Sam has done this correctly once and I have done this correctly none none <laughs> times none times <laughs> I'm also very very good at grammar so are you ready Samantha I am ready okay so in Illinois north of Chicago, back in 1937. Some people were at the beach on the shores of Lake Michigan, sort of suburban Chicago area, right? And they see some people walking up out of the water. But they didn't see when those people had actually gone into the water to start swimming. They just sort of noticed these people walking out of the beach. And and they don't look weird. They look human. But they come over and they start talking. And their English, their voices, is it's English. It's recognizably English, but the format seems old-fashioned. And what the person telling the story, whose name was Robert Jeffers, reported it to the newspapers. There wasn't a book or anything like that. It just sort of showed up in some newspapers here and there. He claimed these people who had walked out of Lake Michigan were part of what Jeffers described as an ancient culture that was living in caves with Chad Oxygen and everything beneath the Great Lakes. Sort of an underground, hollow earth type scenario. But because they are sort of near the water, they had evolved into humans who could who also had gill-like creatures. Like Kevin Costner. Like Kevin Costner or Aquaman. <laughs> You know, so it's it's a weird story. You you get this sort of thing. I think the story first appeared sometime in the mid fifties, which is not too long after a lot of the Hollow Earth stuff came out. So it might have been connected to that. It was in some newspapers. I think it got picked up in some weird magazines like Fate 
and things like that never went anywhere. But I always thought it was just a fascinating sort of weird tie-in to other types of stories about lost human civilizations. I'm going to say it's a lie. Yeah, it is. Um, (laughs) It is. It is. Um, What gave it away? (laughs) What? Earlier today, you told me you were looking this stuff up. And so I was like, he wouldn't have told me a real story. Like, it just, yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh, I told you I was reading. I was looking at Ivan Sanderson's Invisible Residence about intelligent life under the water, didn't I? And I said, there's some Great Lakes stuff in there. Yep. So, (laughs) you know, to be fair, you very could have, you very easily could have remembered I told you that and thought maybe he read this story in there. It just seemed to fit a little too well. Like, I just had this feeling that I was like, mm, he's making this up. <laughs> now I kind of want to write a novel about. It's a good story. It is. Yeah. I And I, I love hollow earth stuff. Okay. Sam is two up two. on me. <laughs> two. It's, it's rough. All right. <laughs> Let's get back to some dog man. Soon enough, I guess we'll know, because this is the time to fear. For another ten years has come around, the seventh year is here. And somewhere in the north woods darkness, a creature walks upright. And the best advice you may ever get is to never go out at night. From The Legend, by Steve Cook. Alright, so another story from Reed City, which is where a lot of these dogman stories would, um, would sort of originate or, or come about. There is a story from 1994, and a young man was living in a farmhouse, and he would sneak out every night to smoke cigarettes. So one night, it's January, he's standing there back of the house, sort of facing the barn, and he sees what he thinks is an old pile of farm equipment, and he sees it move and then he sees something sort of stand up and it wasn't farm equipment it was a creature that was sort of down on the ground that was then standing up it had a strange look to it almost like it had eyes and large pointy ears but i figured it was my imagination running wild but he kept staring at it and then he hears a noise in the woods and he sees this thing turn toward the noise as well and as he does he gets a better look at the creature It's about six feet tall. It's standing on its hind legs. And he says that it has a dog-like appearance, a pointy nose, and really big pointy ears. It looks, he says, as if it kind of had a hunched back. And he walks back to the house. And he walks backward back to the house, sort of not wanting to take his eyes off of whatever it is. And inside, he gets a flashlight, tells his mom what's going on. His mom doesn't believe him. And he heads back out. The creature's not there. There's no footprints the next day. And later on, he has a friend, and she saw something at the house as well at a, at a later time. And she tells him the story, and she's crying. And she describes it as, quote, something the size of a buffalo, and it looked like a dog, and I don't want to talk <laughs> about it anymore. End quote. Pro- profound. Profound uh, <laughs> size of a buffalo. That's enormous. Like a d- it is. Buffalo are freaking huge. Um, Although, I mean, I don't know that we should trust a, a Michigan kid to know the size of a buffalo offhand. <laughs> you know what? I've seen some buffalo like at farms, like here in the Midwest. That's true. I guess. Some, yeah. Some of them are pretty big. Baby buffalo are smaller, but still pretty sizable. I'm, I'm trying to give this young woman the benefit of the doubt <laughs> with her with her buffalo description but um it's a buffalo but looked like a dog it always sort of i don't want to say reassures me or makes me think that things might have more veracity when a witness is really reluctant to talk about that's it that's true though yeah as opposed to let me tell you about the strange translucent creature that looks just like the one from <laughs> predator, predator that i thought might be my dumb cousin or a mountain lion <laughs> And I, yes. I pumped 18 rounds of 357 ammo into it and I just stood there. You know, 
It's like my story about the hollow earth people under Lake Michigan. Maybe tell a little less. Maybe have a little less detail <laughs> and it's a little more more believable. All right. So now we're going to jump into some sightings from the 2000s. In 2004, in the Baldwin area near, near Little Star Lake, two 12-year-old girls were riding a golf cart around on the rural roads. They stopped at a crossroads and they saw a dog running on all fours. And then it rose up onto its hind legs and kept running. In an email um, that they sent to Godfrey two years later, um, one, one of the girls wrote, we had never seen anything like it. It was so skinny and too tall to be a bear. And it obviously wasn't a man because it had been running on four legs very fast. Nothing like the speed of a man. My friend doesn't like to talk about it and she tries to forget about it. And the witness also mentioned that she cannot listen to the song The Legend without getting scared. Again, the friend doesn't like to talk about it, yeah. tries to forget about it. Or is the friend saying, no, I'm not going to keep telling this stupid dog man story that we made up. You know, right, it, right. It, it could be. It could yeah. be either. It could be either thing, um, because what these are—they were twelve when they saw it. They wrote the email two years later. Yeah, fourteen-year-old girls never make stuff up for attention. I mean, fourteen-year-olds in general. So in Manistee, which is on Lake Michigan, in two thousand three or two thousand four, a man saw a creature from about thirty or forty yards away on all fours, but larger than any dog or wolf. He said. It moved in silence. It was huge. And he said it moved in a dog-like way, kind of, but also, quote, moved smoothly like a big cat. So it was dog-like, but moved like a big cat. It never went up on two hind legs. And it's basically just a big wolf. And Godfrey says that she usually does not include um, non-bipedal wolf person sightings, but we'll include them when they're sighted in places where there have been more mysterious encounters. And the witness wondered if it could be a, and this is his phrase, a leftover dire wolf, leftover from the end of the last ice age, I guess. Now, the idea of, of you know, sort of leftover species is, is, is interesting, but I, I liked this case because it was just, if I can be blunt, it was incredibly lame. <laughs> a man saw what was probably a wolf or a large dog and it moved like a big cat. Have you seen a wolf move? Yes. They are they're pretty stealthy. So one more from the uh from from the, the Godfrey book here. This is in Ann Arbor in 2004. And and this one's this one's a weird story. Another weird story, another weird story that that makes me think that maybe the author was reaching a little bit for cases relevant to the topic, a six foot tall German shepherd or wolf staring into the window of a pole barn. That's the story. And the thing is, if you've ever been around a German shepherd or any dog of similar size, if it goes up on its hind legs and puts its, its paws up on something, yeah, it can get to six feet. That's, that's not, and astounding there are dogs that aren't that big when they stretch out i'm like six two he's got his paws up on my shoulders and is sort of looking me in the eye it's a dog that somebody would estimate to be six feet while looking at it through a window doesn't necessarily have to be a dog man but what i find interesting about this is then godfrey segues away from that story very quickly into talking about a completely different creature um the monroe monster which isn't a dog man at all, but we should totally do an episode on it at some point. I talked about it a little bit on a Saucer Life episode, and it's a, it's an interesting story. All right. So we did find um, some, some other sources for some of these encounters outside of the Linda Godfrey book. Uh, there was a July 1987 article in the Port Huron Times Herald. And it reports that there were cabin owners in Luther, Michigan, who and Luther, Michigan is still up in that sort of northern west Michigan area. So that same sort of region that we've been talking about, with the exception of Flint and Ann Arbor. <laughs> and <laughs> they they found damage to their cabin. The screen was ripped their The moldings were ripped into and they thought that it was a bear, but. 
But they called out DNR officers and they thought that it looked like dogs, which, of course, brought out rumors of the dog man. And this is July of 1987. And if we remember back to, um, you know, when we did our little rundown of the Steve Cook song that came out in April of 1987 and Traverse City is in this same northern West Michigan region. (laughs) So definitely something that these folks would have heard of. And so the... um, the article mentions that this is one of the stories that was uh, ended up being called in after the release of that song. So probably, I mean, it was definitely rolling around in, in the minds of these, these folks when they came and found their, the damage to their cabin. But this article then relates another interesting story um, from the Cadillac. Air, well, it, I guess it's not from Cadillac, but Robert Fortney was from Cadillac. And he said that he was target shooting behind the fish hatchery in Paris, Michigan, which is nothing like Paris, France. <laughs> and he was attacked by a pack of five dogs. He said that the lead dog came at his throat and he had to shoot it, which then scared the rest away. But the last dog was large and black and it stood on its hind legs and glared at him before leaving. So remember the details of the story because this is going to come back in a little bit. Leaving Godfrey and behind and, and there's other stories is another major sort of source that uh, that we looked at and that was the website of the North American Dogman Project and it's been around for several years it's in the process of reorganizing in some ways that they didn't fully explain but it's an investigative organization they've got a message board on their website and they've got categories on their website it's it's sort of organized into evidence and photos and encounters. And the thing is, it sort of gets to the idea, I think, of what do we consider evidence? What do we consider sources? And how should these things be presented if you're trying to persuade people of the existence of this, to steal a word from the song, legendary (laughs) creature? So the photo section, there's photos of tracks and prints and other photos that are honestly blurry and indistinct. I have no idea what some of these photos are meant to be. (laughs) There's no captions to tell me what this is supposed to be. Um, There's some fairly gory pictures of wounds to animals. I assume these are supposed to have been caused by dogmen. Again, the pictures have no captions, no information as to location, date, or what we're actually looking at. Similarly, when you go to the documents area, there's, there's newspaper stories, but they're not newspaper stories. They're little sort of Instagram-scaled photos of newspaper stories. You can't read the whole story. You don't know what newspaper it is. You don't know where it's from or when. You're not really sure what you're looking at. You've got the left half of one column and the right half of the column next to it, and sometimes you can't even make out a whole sentence. And there's also user-submitted dogman encounters, and there's a form you can fill out type in your name, type in your email address, type in your encounter. And there's no indication of how these stories are vetted before they're placed on the website, um, how they are investigated, if at all. I'm not saying they're fake stories. I'm not saying, well, everybody just made up stories and submitted them. But I'm saying without an idea of sort of a transparent idea of how these stories are verified or how witnesses might be talked to or conversed with, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, so if I make up a dogman story and put it in there, is it just going to show up on their page? There's no dates on them unless the person writing the narrative mentioned a date. So my question is, Sam, from the perspective of historians who deal with evidence and like to know where that evidence comes from and sort of need to know where that evidence comes from to consider the evidence at all. What kind of evidentiary value does a collection of materials like this have? I mean, my gut, if I were looking at this at a, in a truly academic, like I am sitting down to write a dissertation <laughs> about dog man, um, I would use it purely to demonstrate that there are people who seem to believe in the existence of Dogman. I would not use it at all to 
as cases. Um, I, I wouldn't use it as, as any form of evidence because of the very little structure, professionalism, et cetera, et cetera, that, that is, is demonstrated on the website and in, and in the gathering of these stories. And, and as you pointed out, there's no way to know what, what's true, what's not. I mean, I, I'm not going to say what's true, what was an actual experience versus what are people messing with people. And so really all it does is demonstrate that Dogman exists in the public consciousness. <laughs> Try on this idea. Sites like this, where you can generate content of encounters via the submissions of the public, and then these are presented and then sort of available for people. Are we looking at the creation of sort of digital folklore, a digital age folklore creation and propagation system, maybe? I mean, I think you would have to look at like what stories stick around, what stories stay. Like some of the stories in the Godfrey book, um, I had come across like years ago when I was reading about Dogman on websites or they sound vaguely familiar. So it's like, oh, yes, this is that story. And I had heard the story of like, and we didn't include it here, but hippies in a van or something like that. Like that was <laughs> that was one that I had come across in the past. And so um, so those feel like more part of a like true folklore around this legend, if you will, as opposed to just like some random story <laughs> that, you know, right. you find once on a website. Right. I think it's the staying power. That's a good point because what you've got here is embryonic potential folklore. I think there's folkloric potential. Like these are the seeds, but like the tree, like those are the stories that make it to like the paranormal TV shows, right? Like, right. Um, you, you know, there are stories, you know, whether it be Jersey Devil, Mothman, Bigfoot, you know, whatever it is, it's like, oh yeah, I've I've heard this recounting of this before. Right. Um, if if you're watching enough of those kinds of shows, or you know, the hauntings at like Waverly Hills Sanitarium or something like that. Um, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that haunted place. You know, they they make it big. Those stories make it big. But we right. see this too with like Slenderman, right? Like this is exactly how the Slenderman myth developed. It was just created fake on the internet as a fa false story and suddenly it's repeated here and here and here and here and here and then it becomes a big thing <laughs> it, it it bursts onto the scene yeah. and just looking at it from a from a ufo perspective like like you said there there are ufo stories that are like the ones everybody knows mm -hmm. even if it's just sightings whether it's it's level land in texas or um southeast michigan in 1966 but you also have thousands of other sightings that have about as much sort of detail as some of these. And, yeah. you know, you know, the stories on websites and what also can happen and where things like this can play a role in, in mm -hmm. promoting the legend is, is they sort of make up volume, right? There's the stories that are on TV that everybody knows, but then you can say North American dog man project website has collected over 500 <laughs> dog man. <sightings. laughs> right. And, you know, you, you just throw that statistic out yep. there. You know, it's 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 quantity over qu it's quantity and quality, and mm -hmm. and the the dog man mythos in general can grow that way. Just from look at all these, there must be something to it if this many people mm -hmm. have seen these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's not saying that all of the stories that are on here or any of them are are false or that these people didn't and think they encountered a thing but it's just this is going about it a very wrong way that makes sort of the whole field of looking at these different phenomena like suffer right yeah it's it it, it feels very amateurish and i think part of that is that to, to to be very sort of positive and in in my explanation of why you've got this is a very young field you don't have the the long-standing organizations like some of the Bigfoot organizations or some of the UFO organizations or the ghost hunting organizations that, in some cases, stretch back to the 19th century. Um, Dogman is a relatively recent thing as a, a sort of 
cryptid in quotes cryptid thing. Yeah, but I'm going to I mean, studying cryptids is not that new. I mean, like it wouldn't be that hard to look at how people have done it the right way and do what they're doing. Like it's if you're going to put the effort into it to create this, like spend another hour <laughs> and, and create it in, in a way that's a little more reputable. <laughs> if we could just get them in, and if they're and if they're listening, you know, I, I, I love you. I don't hate you. No, I don't hate your website. I don't hate what you're doing. Just add a few more fields in your submission form <laughs> with time, location. That would be awesome. Explain to us what you do with the stories once they're submitted. Yes. And and if you do that somewhere, make it easier to find on your website. So, because maybe the stuff is out there and I yeah. just didn't click on the right button. <laughs> and we are available for, no joke, we are available for consulting. If you want to know how scholars who deal with sources yeah. and presenting sources to the public do these things, and you've got a project like this and you want some advice, we're uh, available and we'd be happy to... Um, to to arrange terms to work with you on those things because really these are just oral histories right i mean right. like right. Th- they're stories of a thing that happened to this person in the past the past could have been a week ago it could have been 15 years ago whatever so so we do that great <laughs> great lakes lore, great lakes lore podcast at gmail.com and um yeah if you want to if you're a paranormal organization that wants to dress a little better, get uh, get in touch with us, and we'll. And suddenly, uh, our Dogman episode became a sales pitch for our professional services. <laughs> that's right. Let's look now at something called the Gable video. So I had mentioned the Gable film at the very beginning of the podcast as um, something that I watched when I first encountered Dogman, and um, this is a video that you can still find on YouTube. Um, It is a grainy eight millimeter video or eight millimeter film video that appears to have been filmed in the 1970s. There are, you know, it seems like a family video in, um, you know, northern Michigan. There are scenes of kids on snowmobiles. There's a man chopping wood. They are dressed in, in, you know, 1970s-ish clothing. Man has long hair, (laughs) which sort of adds to this northern Michigan 1970s feel. And then they're filming out the window of a moving vehicle. And there's a dark object off in in the background um, out behind some trees. The person who's filming, they get out of the car and they keep filming. And (laughs) the monster, they're the blob, I guess, that's in the trees appears to move. And then it starts running towards the camera. The film jostles about as though something dramatic is happening and all of a sudden you see teeth like on on the screen and then there's nothing. And so as a 20-year-old watching this in her dorm room with her best friend of many years, it was terrifying. <laughs> now watching it, it was like, oh, this is not scary, but you know, you hype yourself up. <laughs> it's funny. I, I showed my wife this um, yesterday and we're, it's like the whole thing is three minutes long yeah. and we're staring there. I'm making her look at my phone and she's just watching it, getting more and more irritated that nothing seems to be happening. <laughs> and then you get to the end and she's like, was that it? <laughs> and I'm like, apparently so. Well, I mean, if you've watched many of these like cryptid sighting videos, I mean, this is as much as any of those are, right? Like it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's right in the realm of like it fits into that whole thing. It's very Patterson Gimlin. It is. It's, it's right in that. It is, and and she did she did she did know. It's like I guess it looks like it could sort of be <laughs> like all of them, right? And I mean the thing moves weird. It's kind of lumbering. Like when I first watched it, it looked it's very gorilla like kind of like it looks like it has these big like front. Yeah. I'm I'm making motions in the video, not that you folks can see it, but it looks like it's sort of lumbering on its like front legs as much as back. So it's not standing up on two feet. I should say that because that's the dog man theme, right? Is up on two feet. This is not on two feet. 
And so when you first watch it, you're like, whoa, a person could never run that way, <laughs> right? Like, it just seems <laughs> not right. Okay, so that's the video. So on the episode of the History Channel show Monster Quest, which I've mentioned a few times, they have this American Werewolf episode in season four, I believe, the last the last season, I think, of, of Monster Quest. Um, and the team interviews the, the, the DJ, Steve Cook, whom we've mentioned, and he says he received the roughly three-minute-long video from a woman who found it in a box that she purchased at an estate sale. So she bought this box of whatever, and this video ended up being in there, this film reel. Cook watches it, and he posts the video online. Oh, and this all happens in 2007, I should say. And according to Cook, he posted it to a Yahoo group started by dogman investigator Linda Godfrey, whose book we've mentioned several times. And the video took off. People pirated copies. Cook said his intention was to just leave it up for a few days. But of course, it's the internet. (laughs) And so a few days gives everybody time to get everything at all that they want out of this video and share it however in the heck they want to. Um, so in this Monster Quest episode, you know, they sit down with Cook, they're talking to him about it, and there's this dramatic moment where, you know, Cook says, well, I haven't been completely honest with you. And then there's a commercial. (laughs) And then they come back. (laughs) And he admits that he was given the film by a local machinist named Mike Agrusa, who made the film himself in 2007. So Agrusa said that he wanted to bring back the good old fun hysteria of 1987, <laughs> which I didn't know hysteria was fun, um, but apparently to to him it was. And so he had all the things he needed to make this video. He wanted it to look like, you know, just just family footage, you know, somebody recording the kids, recording their chopping wood, having a drink, driving in the car, doing what ever a 1970s family does and to look like they just happened upon this beast who attacked them. And he even filmed a, uh, a second, a follow-up video the next year that was supposed to look like the police investigating this um, attack scene. And, 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 and in this monster quest episode, he goes into detail about how he, you know, made the sort of the mutilated, corpse <laughs> look and and all of that kind of stuff and so he made that in 2008 and released it and i saw a comment somewhere that said like yeah that's where he made his mistake because that second video was just a little too much um <laughs> uh, but it was all very contrived by the history channel i feel to like here's this video and like throughout the episode they have like the guy analyzing the film and somebody else saying like oh this this looks weird could a man actually move this way and then it's like well you knew that he was going to admit it was a fake i don't know it's all right weird. <laughs> it's 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 the history channel it's tv <laughs> It, well, yeah, it's it's TV. So to wrap up, so much of the legend is just that. It's legend. These stories are told over and over in books and websites and cable TV shows and, and details and facts can can change in each of these tellings because a lot of this stuff isn't documented fairly well, if at all. For example, we mentioned the story of Robert Fortney. And we recounted the story as it was explained in the 1987 newspaper article. We then came across the story again in a 2011 Detroit Free Press article about the Steve Cook song and a documentary he was working on. But the story is a bit different. The article said that Fortney was fishing on the Muskegon River near Paris, not shooting behind a fishery (laughs) in Paris. It then says that the dogs came after him and he shot a warning shot to scare them away. Instead of like shooting a dog, <laughs> right. the last one was still the large black one and stood on his hind legs and, and stared at him for two minutes. But it's different in some, you know, it's noticeably yes. different. <laughs> yeah. And so then when we look at, you know, folks like Steve Cook and the role that they play in um, in building up this legend and, and they're almost seen as some kind of an expert or something, right? Like he put out the song, you know, he had these stories. Um, well, in, in that same article, he claimed that the Ottawa Indians, the, the, the tribe that's up in that, in that Traverse city region, um, 
They refer to the Dogman as the Wendigo. As mentioned earlier, the Wendigo has a completely different mythology about it. It looks very different. Um, it's it's a different kind of a creature. Um, so we have people who are improperly interpreting folklore to match the reports that they're finding. And so I don't know if it's like, oh, well, this is a... a dog creature standing on two legs, which seems kind of maybe slightly similar to this Native American <laughs> legend, which I don't know how much he knows about it, but it's clearly not dog man. <laughs> um, right. And so and so we have these folks who just sort of dabble in history and folklore, and they're not documenting their sources. They're not fully understanding even like the cultural history behind something like the Wendigo creature and Native American culture's community and being connected um, to to the members of your community is very important. And so when do people become a Wendigo? When they're greedy, when they're sort of ostracized from a community or have removed themselves, that's when they're susceptible. And so there's no inkling that that there's an understanding of of what this this piece of folklore is. Additionally, these kind of folks, you know, they're not, you know, documenting their sources. The same article about Steve Cook says that he had a quote, diary entry from a Comstock resident in 1857 that states, near a barn, it stood, dogman stood, as if a man, yet it bore the countenance of a gray wolf. Well, what kind of diary is this? Like, who has an 1857 diary in 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 2011 when this article was written? You know that that diary is like 150, 60 years old. Is is that in an archive somewhere? Can we see that? <laughs> um, so these are the types of questions that arise when when we have folks like this who just are. are you know, maybe there really is this diary and it has this quote in it, but nobody else has access to that. And so kind of that, if it's gatekeeping, whatever it is, like it's not allowing us to fully grasp what's behind this legend. And being cynical, does this even exist, this diary? Well, right. Yes. That's why I said if there is a diary. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Right. Yes. I'm, I'm, and I'm just sort of reiterating that point. It's like before we go down the road of, of well, yeah. is it in an arc? I was like, is this real? Um, <laughs> I almost always say no um, until they show me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm saying maybe. So it, it's also worth considering the role that Cook's song had in enhancing the mythology of the cryptid mm-hmm. and maybe in many people's minds, almost creating it or, or, or making it, making them aware of it. So as we looked into cook's song it was unclear which of the song's lyrics were actual legends and which were just made up (laughs) it's legend or lie contained in a song we don't know which or which Uh, he claims he knew nothing of the creature before writing the song but then found the rich history of the dogman so which came first if if it was a mixture of fact (laughs) and fiction but he didn't know about the fact before he started writing the song why would he have looked for the fact, ah, you know what I mean? And Dogman's a weird thing to just suddenly dream up one right. day. <laughs> right. This isn't like he's making up a Michigan Bigfoot song where, right. you know, like, oh, Bigfoot. Yeah, we all know that. Right. But you know, yeah. So um, so which came first? Which pieces are real? And what, what's just been turned into an April Fool's joke? So what do we do with all this? We can't discount all of these stories. But has the song put an idea in the minds of the people that muddles their own perceptions? Even Wikipedia says that according to legend, the creature appears in 10-year cycles, the seventh year of every decade. But is that just a part of Cook's song that's been absorbed by the larger Dogman legend? Yeah, I mean, if and if we look at things, we have sightings from the Godfrey book in years that aren't seven years. <laughs> right. We have 2004, 2003, 2004. So... But but Wikipedia says the legend says, and it's like, I think a DJ just made that up. Yeah, the, the legend in that, the song, the legend, you know? It, it- right. The other thing that I thought we could wrap this up with ties back to our previous episode about wolves and wolf lore. Um, could people just be seeing wolves? I mean, 
Obviously, wolves don't stand on their hind legs, but what if people are just seeing large gray wolves and in their terror, they're misidentifying it? Michigan's Lower Peninsula has no established wolf population, but there are still some spotted from time to time. That just means it doesn't have like a steady pack, you know, like these identifiable packs that are traveling throughout. But there are wolves down here. Um DNA evidence has confirmed it, and the DNR has also conducted surveys asking people who spot a wolf in the Lower Peninsula to report it. There's not many of them. People don't necessarily expect to see them down here in the Lower Peninsula. In the Upper Peninsula, sure. <laughs> um, but but down here, they don't. And so when they see something like that, maybe it's surprising, it's shocking, they don't, they don't know what they're seeing, and so they're scared and, you know... All of us can exaggerate things when we're afraid. Um, it happens. Or like we talked about in our um, Paranormalist Personal episode, if you're predisposed to this, you know, all kinds of different things happen in your mind to to make up, you know, make sense of what you're seeing. So we're not saying that these people didn't see a thing, but are they seeing something very unexpected, but also normal? <laughs> and are they seeing something that they have been conditioned through media to right. assume might be something yeah. what we see and absorb has an effect on how we how we perceive those things so that plays into the story and godfrey mentioned in her book that she was surprised that there weren't as many sightings in the upper peninsula um the upper peninsula i think well according to the monster quest episode last night <laughs> um, has like three <laughs> percent of the state's whole population or something so it's incredibly sparsely populated for anybody who's not familiar with it there's not many people up there um but there are a lot of wolves up there and people know there are wolves up there so maybe these people who see the wolf like they're just like Oh yeah, that's the wolf. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not they're, they're not reacting to something that they don't ex- that they don't not expect to see. That you know what I'm trying to right. say. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think that's an an interesting thing to think about as we look at some of these stories and tales and things. And I think going forward, it's going to be interesting when we get to Dogman Part 3 eventually. <laughs> sometime down the road where there's another <laughs> state's dogman to see what differences there are between the dogman stories of Michigan where you do have this song and this, this sort of mm-hmm. narrative since the, the 80s that has sort of been in the background of dogman how are dogman sightings different how are the reactions different in places like Illinois or Ohio or Minnesota <laughs> mm-hmm. or Wisconsin so don't worry folks there will be more Dogman to come. Yes. We just thought the Michigan Dogman story had such a very, it has things that are very interestingly particular to it, like the yes. song and the Gable film and all of these things that this needed to be treated as sort of a very isolated legend, <laughs> as Correct. opposed to uh, obviously it is a piece of some Dogman perhaps thing that's happening, but this is, this is its own sort of tale that we're yes. looking at tonight. There, there, there's a there's a pop cultural angle that yes. doesn't exist in the same way in other places. Right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Dogman Part 2, Examining Michigan's Cryptid, was written and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel. Our music is by Raphael Crooks. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the dogman. <laughs> Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. <laughs>